The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. I do invite you to open your Bibles to Esther chapter 5. We've spent four sermons journeying through the first four chapters of Esther. And so this morning, in one sermon, we're going to journey through the next four and a half chapters. That's not a misprint in your bulletin. I just didn't make you sit through the reading of the whole thing. Buckle up. We're about to fly through chapters five through nine. And the reason is because, well, one of the reasons is because we only have one more Sunday before Advent, and I need like six more, but I don't have six more, so we got to get through this very quickly. But another reason is because the events of these chapters read like dominoes falling in a chain reaction. Like one event causes the next, which causes the next, and causes the next. And, and to get the point of all that's happening, we, we've got to follow this chain reaction through to its conclusion. That's where we see the point. We've got to see the conclusion, the overarching point, the overarching truth that's being shown to us in these chapters. And we've got to see that truth because it is the truth that will empower everything we have seen thus far in Esther. The truth here in 5 through 9, it will empower us to believe that God is present even when it seems like he's absent. It will empower us to wake up from compromise and compliance with the world around us. It will empower us to wake up from that and to embrace our identity as God's people and to die to ourselves for the sake of his glory and the good of all. The truth of chapters 5 through 9 is what empowered Mordecai and Esther to do this. We saw this with Esther just last week. We saw her become empowered to do exactly what we just described. If you remember Haman, the enemy of the Jews, he has convinced our headache of a king, Xerxes, to have all of the Jews killed in 11 months' time. Queen Esther, who is a Jew, but secretly so, she could have chosen to keep her identity a secret, but God, we saw last week in chapter 4, woke her from her compliance woke her from her compliance to embrace her identity as a part of the people of God. She died to herself. Died to all of her power, her beauty, her wealth, everything that had had given her, could give her an advantage. She lays it all aside and we saw her, and we'll see her again in the beginning of chapter 5, come to the king in humility and weakness. We saw Esther take the way of the cross. Esther as a character in the Old Testament, especially right here, is what we call in theology a type of Christ. A small picture, a small pointer that's pointing to some grander, larger reality that's yet to come. A foreshadowing. She's a type of of Christ. Christ emptied himself of all his power and advantages. He, he laid it aside. He didn't leverage it for his own advantage. No, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. He came in humility and weakness to the cross, all for the glory of God, the love of the world, and the salvation of his people. Is that not a mirror image of what we see here in Esther? She came to embrace her own death in humility and weakness. Why? For the glory of God, the love of Persia, and the salvation of God's people. What empowered her to do that? To take the way of the cross. What what will empower us to do that? 
And this is what we talked about last week. We talked about how we're called to stand firm on the promises of God, to not withdraw from our culture, to not war against our culture, but to love it by taking the way of weakness, the way of the cross. What could empower us? What, what was empowering Esther to take the way of the cross? And as soon, I don't know about for you, but for me, as soon as I ask that question, I feel a rising objection. I'm willing to bet that you feel it too if you know what's about to unfold in chapters 5 through 9. If you know how the book of Esther ends, then I bet you even felt this objection rising in your heart last week. Like last week, as we talked about how Esther didn't withdraw or war, more specifically. She didn't war against her culture, but she loved it by taking the way of weakness. I'm willing to bet some of you were saying, hold up now. Like I know chapters 8 and 9 are coming, which are nothing but war. With Esther at the helm of that warship. Like like, Jonathan, how can you say, how can we say that Esther is taking the way of weakness when she will clearly be taking the way of war not too long from now? I mean, isn't Esther going to have Haman killed? Isn't she going to push for a decree that will allow all of the Jews to wage war on their fellow Persians for a day? Won't she even be so bloodthirsty in chapter 9 that she'll ask for a one-day extension to that war just so they can slaughter 300 more people in the capital? I mean, by the time everything is done, Esther's going to have the blood of 75,000 Persians on her hands. What's empowering Esther's actions? I mean, when we look at it like that, the answer seems pretty clear to me. Revenge, right? Isn't that what's motivating her? Isn't that what's empowering her not to take the way of the cross, but the way of war? Is that what's happening in Esther chapters 5 through 9? Revenge. Is that really what's empowered all of her, all of her actions? Or is that a misrepresentation? A misinterpretation, which is embraced by a ton of scholars, by the way. Lots of them take that view. Is that a misrepresentation, a misinterpretation of how this book ends? Here's the deal, Shades. I do believe that chapters 5 through 9 reveal what is empowering Esther's actions, but it's not revenge. That doesn't fit with anything that we have seen up to this point. Revenge doesn't wake her up from her compliance. Revenge doesn't make her die to herself and embrace her identity as a part of God's people. Revenge doesn't make her go to the king in humility and weakness, risking her own life for the sake of others. Revenge doesn't do that. Revenge isn't selfless. It seeks its own. It's it's not what's empowering her. What is rescue? rescue. What empowers, here's the central truth we're going to unpack for the rest of our time, what empowers Esther and empowers us to take the way of the cross is the promise of ultimate rescue. That's 
That's what I want us to unpack for the rest of our time this morning. I want us to see what it means. What is the promise of ultimate rescue? What does it mean to live my life empowered by the promise of of ultimate rescue? How's that going to help me take the way of the, the cross? I want us to see how that's true for Esther, for you, for me. So, let's look into chapters five through nine together. See how Esther and we are empowered to take the way of the cross, not by the pleasures of revenge, but by the promise of rescue. We see it beginning in chapters 5 through 7. There's two, there's two different pieces here of what we're going to look at. All right? In 5 through 7, we're going to see first the conflict between Haman and Esther. We're about to see two conflicts set side by side, two parallel conflicts. A smaller story, and by smaller I just mean it involves less people. It involves two, Esther and Haman. And it's a smaller story that's going to serve to, to give us a preview of what's going to happen in the following larger story between all the Jews and all their enemies. This, this doublet, this parallel of story, small story, large story that illumine one another, this we have noticed has been a repeated pattern throughout the book of Esther, has it not? Like often we're given this small scale story that's a preview of what's actually about to happen on a much larger scale. Like we got that right out of the gate in chapter one. In chapter one, we were given this small-scale conflict between Xerxes and Vashti that is elevated and becomes a large-scale empire-wide conflict between husbands and wives. We saw something like this again in chapter 3 with the conflict between Haman and Mordecai. As Mordecai would kneel, and that conflict becomes a massive story between conflict between all the Jews and their, their enemies. And now again, in chapter 5, we've got conflict on a small scale between Esther and Haman that's going to point us towards what will come of the conflict between all the Jews and all their enemies. The smaller stories are pointing to a larger reality. If we understand what's going on in the small story, it helps us understand what's going on in the big story. So we've got to start here. It's where we're going to spend most of our time with this smaller story in 5 through 7 with Esther and Haman. We've got to ask about this smaller story. What do we see empowering Esther? Revenge? or rescue. Let's walk through the smaller story, see if it's revenge or rescue empowering Esther, and let's see how this relates to us. Then once we've done that, towards the end of our time, we can step back, look at the larger story, and see if it is empowered by revenge or rescue and how it relates to us. That's the plan. So here we go. First, the smaller story of Esther and Haman. Look at Esther chapter 5, starting in verse 1. On the third day. That is not insignificant. We will come back to it. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. In other words, she stood where, she, where he could see her. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor, grace in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to half of my kingdom, which is just a king's exaggerating way of saying, I'll give you whatever you want. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. So we talked about this scene a little bit last week and how Esther 
had to approach the king uninvited, and that, in doing that, she was risking her life. If he did not extend his golden scepter to her, she would be executed on the spot. And so if you remember, at the end of chapter 4, she actually spends three days fasting. No eating, no drinking, and then she puts on her royal robes, which would have served as a massive contrast to the state of her body. And She comes to the king in weakness and humility, not asserting her position or power, but humbly making a request. First, a request that risks her life just to see him. And then she will make an ultimate request, not one for revenge, but a request for rescue. How do we know that's what's going on? She's coming humbly to request not revenge, but but rescue. The fact that that's what's happening, I think, becomes even more obvious to us as we keep reading through the chapter. Because the author of Esther is going to purposely create a contrast between Esther and Haman. He wants us to compare the two and see just how opposite they, they are. So let's do that, shall we? Let's compare Esther Haman. Esther humbly asked the king and Haman to come to a feast. There she's going to make her request known, but as you keep reading, I'm going to do a lot of summarizing today, people. It's four chapters, all right? But as you come to the conclusion of that feast, she doesn't present her request. She just humbly invites the king and Haman to another feast on the next day, again promising that at that time she'll make her request known. All of this serves to highlight Esther's humility. She's not making a brash, rushed demand of the king as if he is hers to command. No, she's taking on the form of a servant. She's serving him again and again so that she may present her request from a position of humility. We know that's what she's doing because the author highlights it for us by immediately contrasting Esther's humble heart with Haman's heart of pride. Look at Haman as he leaves the first feast, knowing he's been invited to a second one tomorrow. Look at how he feels about it. Verse 9, chapter 5. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Keep reading. Haman rushes home, and he has a brag session with his wife, Zeresh, and all of his friends, Verse 11 says he recounts to them all of the splendor of his, his riches, the number of his sons, which are ten, by the way, all of his promotions that the king has given to him, and, and even how the queen herself invites only him to feast with her and the king on multiple occasions, today and again, tomorrow. But he says all of that is worth nothing to me because Mordecai won't bow Oh, shades, there's a massive warning here. See the insatiable hunger of pride that always wants one more thing to be satisfied. You want to know if you're prideful? To react like Haman here. Pride swells like a water balloon. The bigger it is, the easier it is to pop. All it takes to pop Haman's pride is one Mordecai. And he wants revenge. So, 
at the suggestion of his wife and friends. Haman builds a 50 cubit, that's 75 foot tall, impalement pole for Mordecai. 75 feet tall. He wants everybody to be able to see this guy impaled. He wants them to see what happens when you don't bow down to Haman. Quick aside right here. He does this at the suggestion of his wife and friends. This is why you need to surround yourself with people who are willing to pop your pride. Not people who will prop it up. Young single men, you do not need a Zeresh. You need a Holly. That's my wife. And she is a skilled pride popper. The grace of God on my life she is. So he builds this 75-foot impalement pole, and he plans to go to the king in the morning and tell him, not request, tell him to have Mordecai impaled upon what he has built. Then he'll be able to joyfully go and feast with the king and queen. Do you see the contrast of how Esther entered the court of the king and the way Haman plans to? One comes in humility, requesting rescue. The other comes in pride, demanding revenge. And all of this, everything we see right here, it's all going to turn on the hinge of chapter 6. Chapter 6 is the turning point in the story. Everything is about to reverse. Everything we've seen building up to this point is all about to fall down backwards. Everything we've expected to happen is going to end up turned on its, its head. Those who have exalted themselves will be humbled. And those who have humbled themselves will be exalted. Rescue is coming, and it's coming through reversal. And the beauty of chapter 6 is it shows us precisely who the rescue is coming through. It's important that the turning point of this story is not chapter 7. Chapter 6 shows us who the rescue is coming through. Look at it with me. Chapter 6 and verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles. And they were read before the king. The king can't sleep. Perhaps he's tossing and turning about what Esther's request could possibly be. She's never looked as bad as she has looked before. Before this. And unfortunately for us, we know that Esther's request tomorrow, it's going to come too late. Like Haman plans to show up in the king's court in the morning, to impale Mordecai in the morning. Esther's plan, her request, it's going to be too late to rescue Mordecai. And that's the point of chapter 6. Through a sleepless king, we're meant to see who it is that's doing the rescuing. It's not Esther. Her plan's going to come late. She's not in control. She's not providentially ruling and reigning, but God is. And he's going to start the reversal process and carry it through. He is ruling and reigning, and he is going to rescue through reversal. I... If you don't believe that's what is going to happen right here, then you have to get really ridiculous with believing in some crazy coincidences in chapter 6. Like you either have to believe in 
The providence of God or crazy coincidence? We've seen God's providence be working through coincidences throughout this book. But in chapter 6, it's just going to get a little bit crazy. Like if you want to say God is not the one ruling and reigning through his providence, doing the rescuing right here, then you have to believe that the king just happened to have a sleepless night. And he just happened to ask for the books of memorable deeds to be read to him. And in verse 2, you have to believe that it just happened to be read to him of how Mordecai had once saved him from assassination, probably about five years earlier. And Xerxes just happens to find out that they never did anything to reward Mordecai for that great deed. And so he starts looking around for an idea person. Who can give me an idea of what we should do to reward Mordecai? And who happens to walk in but just Haman? And in verse 6 we read, here comes Haman to seek the demise of Mordecai. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Watch Haman impale himself on his own pride. Haman said to himself, whom would the king like to honor, to like to honor more than me? So he thinks everything that's about to come out of his mouth is headed his way. So Haman said to the king, For the man who the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and a, a horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done, to the man whom the king delights to honor. This is debatably the funniest, most ironic scene in the Bible. Like, we're meant to laugh. And do you believe that any of this is happening by chance? Like the author of Esther is at pains to slap us in the face with the providence of God. He wants us to see who is bringing about the reversal, the rescue. It's not Mordecai. It's not Esther. It's God. This is the moment when everything gets flipped on its head and the dominoes begin to fall in the other direction. This is the moment where we know what's going to happen for the rest of the story because we recognize who's in control. This is the moment of reversal. Xerxes tells Haman, everything you just said, do that for Mordecai. Haman, who wanted nothing more than to be king for a day, you realize that's what he was going for, right? Like Haman's second in the kingdom. He can only be rewarded with one more thing, the one thing he wants. To be in the highest position, king of kings, so that everyone, even Mordecai, has got to bow. And in planning Mordecai's demise, Haman is the direct result of his rise. Haman wanted nothing more than to be king for a day. And he's totally defeated as he has to dress Mordecai in the king's robes, put him on the king's horse, and make sure that Mordecai is treated like royalty. Haman gets destroyed by his own pride. And he is literally about to get impaled upon it. That that 75-foot pole that he put up for Mordecai, it really serves as a measure of Haman's pride. He's about to get impaled on it, and everybody knows that's what's coming. 
Like after this moment, parading through the streets, here's Mordecai, the man the king delights to honor. After Haman's humiliation, we read that he runs home with his head covered to whine to his wife and to all of his friends about it. Listen to their response when they hear about this reversal. Look at, look at chapter 6 and verse 13. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, like we're recognizing this is just the start of something. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is one of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Apparently they had missed or ignored the fact that Mordecai was Jewish while they all were making plans in their pride. And now that point is very relevant. God has a promise that he's made to his people. A promise of rescue. And even, even these Persians, they've heard that this God is a God who keeps his promises to his people. And his promise keeping continues in chapter 7 as Haman gets called to that final feast with Esther and the king, where she finally does make her request known. And what is it? It's a request for rescue. Look at chapter 7, verse 3. Esther says, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Do you hear her request? Save us. Rescue us. The king asks, from whom? Who's going to annihilate you, kill you, destroy you? Esther replies, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. If you read through the text, you'll notice Esther never asks for Haman's death. Her only request is for the lives of her people. This is not a request for revenge, but one for rescue. She doesn't request Haman's death. No, Haman's pride has sealed his own fate. Like, that is his fault. The king in this, in this moment is so ticked that he actually ends up storming out of the room. And as he comes back in, Haman just happens to be slipping or tripping or something, falling onto the couch where Esther is, and it looks like he's assaulting her just for the cherry on top. Like, Xerxes has seen enough. And he looks for an idea man. What are we going to do? To Haman, and I love, I'm sorry, I do, it may be morbid, but I love chapter 6 and verse 9 because we hear the name of this eunuch, Harbona, and for no other, like, I, I just got to imagine that this guy has some reason that he's just been waiting, like, one day, I don't like this Haman guy, and one day I'm going to get to say something. And if you read chapter 9, he goes, you know, Haman just built a 75-foot pole for Mordecai, Mordecai who rescued you? Yeah, he built that for him. Just throwing it out there. Xerxes says, hang him on that. Haman dies, impaled by his own pride. God keeps his promise to rescue his people. This is the promise that empowered Esther 
to humbly take the way of weakness, to risk everything, including her own life. This is the promise that empowered her to take the way of the cross. All of her actions were empowered not by the pleasures of revenge, but by the promise of rescue. And not not a promise of personal rescue, not a promise of immediate rescue, but a promise of ultimate rescue rescue. Esther didn't take the actions that she did because she believed that God would rescue her from death. A personal rescue. Remember that from the end of chapter 4. Like She doesn't know what's going to happen. She doesn't know what's going to unfold. She's like, if I perish, I perish. Like I very much recognize that God may not rescue me in this situation at this time from death. The rescue that she's trusting in, the promise of rescue, it is not for a personal rescue. It is not for an immediate rescue. No, she is empowered by a promise of ultimate rescue. You know that because that's the promise Mordecai had reminded her of in chapter 4 and verse 14. He reminded her of God's promise to his people that he would save them, he would keep them, he would not let them be destroyed, he would preserve them to the end. And he told Esther, God's going to keep that promise whether he uses you or whether he uses someone else. And that promise of ultimate rescue empowered Esther to die to herself, risk everything that she had known, even if she personally perishes. She knows even if Haman wins in this moment, he won't win ultimately. I've got a promise that God will win. I've got a promise that God will ultimately rescue and reverse all things for his people. And she wants her life to be a part of that victory. Shades, this is the same promise of ultimate rescue and reversal that empowers us. We too face an enemy like Haman. One who desired more than anything to put himself in the place of the king of kings. Esther is a type of Christ. Haman is a type of antichrist. Esther points us to Jesus. Haman points us to Satan. Satan, the foe and enemy of God's people, wanted more than anything to dress up and play God. He wants to receive all the worship that belongs to God and God alone. And anyone unwilling to bow down to his desires infuriates him. Because they remind him he's not God. He's not the king who is worthy of worship. And so Satan, much like Haman, roams around like a roaring lion seeking to destroy and devour God's people and to poison the whole world against them if he can. Haman, the enemy of God's people, is just a small picture of a larger reality, a picture of a true enemy seeking to destroy God's people since the beginning. He's a picture of Satan. But Esther didn't tremble for Haman, and we don't tremble before the enemy, Satan. We don't tremble for him. Because in Mordecai and Esther, we get a small picture of a larger reality that is God's promise of ultimate rescue. For God sent one greater than Esther, his own son. He sent him, Jesus Christ, not for revenge, but for rescue. 
Christ humbled himself, came in weakness, took the way of the cross, and through weakness he defeated Satan, impaled him with his own pride. He took the very tool of destruction that Satan sought to use to kill Christ. He took a cross and it became the very tool of Satan's own defeat. Satan erected a pole for the impalement of Christ and he impaled himself died and was destroyed ultimate eternal this is this is rescue through reversal and it didn't stop at the cross it continued through the tomb where jesus reversed death itself and all who humble themselves through faith saying i need jesus he's my only hope for rescue all who humbly treasure him not their own life but they treasure christ they, like Mordecai, are lifted from their lowly position, clothed in the very righteous robe of the king and treated like royalty. This is the promise of ultimate rescue. This is what empowers us to wake up from our compromise and compliance with the world around us. This, this is what empowers us to embrace our identity as the people of God. This is what empowers us to deny ourselves and to take the way of the cross, risking everything, all money, all sexuality, all power, everything that the world would like to gain and tempt us to gain, everything that Satan poisons the mind of the world with. We, we can lose it all. We can even risk losing our own lives because we have a promise of an ultimate rescue. Christ came and defeated sin and death and the devil and we have a promise shades that he is coming again to make that rescue full and final he's coming again to bring his great reversal to completion and that is the picture we see in esther 8 and 9 transitioning to the second picture here We've seen how oh God has rescued Esther from Haman, but that small story, remember, it foreshadows a larger reality. The larger reality in Esther 8 9, that God is about to save all of his people from all of their enemies. And he's going to do it through Esther coming to the king a second time. A second coming, if you will. Look at Esther chapter 8 and verse 3. Then Esther spoke to the king again. This isn't happening on the same day. You can kind of get that impression. But if you read on through the chapter, you'll realize this is two months later. Esther spoke again to the king. She came a second time. And she fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite. And the plot that he had devised against the Jews. Why is she coming a second time? In her first coming to the king, the penalty of death had hung over Esther for three days. And on the third day, she was given life. Sound familiar? This is a repeated refrain throughout the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 21 the penalty of death hangs over the son of Abraham, Isaac, and on the third day, life is given. The book of Jonah, 
Jonah is swallowed whole, taken into the belly of a fish for three days. Death itself holds him in its belly. And on the third day, life. Jesus himself picks up that picture and says very similarly, similarly, I'm going to be swallowed up by death for three days. And then life. This is the picture of Esther's first coming to the king. Penalty of death over her head. On the third day, she is given life. But just her. The king saves her. In her second coming to the king, she seeks the full reversal of the death penalty that still hangs over all of God's people. But how can Xerxes possibly grant her request? Like we've read again and again throughout this book that Persian law, it's irrevocable. The decree of the death of God's people, it stands what can be done. If you read, Xerxes grants Esther and Mordecai the power to make a new decree. This is more reversal. He takes the very ring, signet ring, that he'd given to Haman, and he gives it to Mordecai. He says, make decree whatever you need. And so they do. They make a decree, not of revenge, but of rescue. Their decree is not anti-Persia. Let's just get revenge on Persia. Their decree is anti-Haman and all his sons, those who share in his hate and follow him. They make a decree, if you read through it, that the Jews will be allowed to defend themselves against their attackers. It says that specifically in chapter 8 and verse 11. This is not just a carte blanche, go kill anybody you want to. No, you are allowed to defend yourself against your attackers, against all who share in the hate of Haman. And this new decree, it's written in the exact language of the first, showing that it's a full reversal. And this decree, it's good news. That a day that was to be a day of destruction is going to turn into a day of salvation. And that good news goes out into all the Persian world. And verse 15 says that the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced at this good News. If you remember, after the first decree at the end of chapter 3, the city of Susa is thrown into confusion over the hatred of Haman. But now, a reversal. They rejoice because this new edict isn't about the Jews getting revenge on all of Persia. It's about them specifically being rescued from their enemies fully and finally. Persia re rejoices in this because they've been poisoned by Haman too. Do we not share a very similar mission, Shades? Do we not live in a world that's been poisoned by our enemy? And our mission is not to be anti our Persia. No, Ephesians 6 and verse 11 says that we wage war not against flesh and blood, but against the enemy who has poisoned the people of our world. We go to the people of our world with good news, gospel good news, that a day that was destined to be a day of destruction has become a day of salvation. We, we go with the good news that all who trust in God and are a part of his people are going to be rescued fully and finally. That's the aim of this edict, and the fullness and the finality of it unfold in chapter 9. Look at chapter 9 and verse 1. 
says, now on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, that's the command and edict for the Jews to be annihilated, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. This paragraph right here is actually really strange. Like you've been paying attention throughout the book. The author is doing something right here that he's never done before. All throughout this book, the author has been a master of building suspense. Like he just gives you cliffhanger after cliffhanger after cliffhanger so that you've got to keep reading the book. Like at the beginning, Vashti's banished. What's going to happen? Esther's taken. What's going to happen? Mordecai won't bow. What's going to happen? Esther says, if I perish, I perish. What's going to happen? And you just like have to keep re- reading. You can't stop. Until here, chapter 9 and verse 1. There's no suspense. There's no drama. Just very matter of fact. On the day, the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them. The reverse occurred. He gives us the end at the beginning. And then he's going to go on throughout chapter 9 to tell us exactly how all of this happened. And he's going to tell it to us in a very matter-of-fact style. Why the change? Like, it's so abrupt, there are scholars that think this part of the book was written by somebody completely different. I don't think that at all. I think the elimination of the suspense is on purpose. Biblical authors are very precise, very skilled storytellers. And the author, I believe wants us to see that for all of the uncertainty that we experienced alongside of Mordecai and Esther throughout all of their story, throughout all of that uncertainty, all the suspense, the end was never uncertain. Full and final rescue was guaranteed from the beginning by the sovereign providence of God. Nothing could thwart his ultimate rescue and reversal of all things. We are meant to see and feel that his rescue is full and final. If you look in in verse 3, Esther's actually going to go on to request a, excuse me, I think it's verse 13, she's going to go on to request a second day of fighting be allowed in the capital city of Susa. Why? Is it because she's bloodthirsty? No, she requests that the bodies of Haman's ten sons might be impaled, put on display, and the remaining conspirators might be killed. She requests it for fullness and finality. This isn't about revenge. The author labors for us to see that three times in verse 10 and verse 15 and verse 16. Three different times he tells us the Jews didn't lay a single hand on plunder from the people they defended themselves against. They legally had a right to do that. You attack me, I defend myself against you, I can take your stuff. But they don't. Why? Because this isn't about revenge. This isn't about profiting off of, off of war. This is about rescue which they recognize, the Jewish people recognize, Esther recognizes, has come from the very hand of God. How do I know she recognizes it? Because that's why she has Haman's sons impaled. The the law, the book of the law, Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 23 says that anyone who is hung upon a tree is cursed of God and under the wrath of God. 
She has them hung on a tree as a message to all of her people. God, in his righteous wrath, has rescued us. Fully and finally. And this, this small story, I know I called it a large story, but it's a small story because it also is a picture of a larger, greater reality. I said at the beginning that in the book of Esther we've seen a pattern of smaller story foreshadowing what's coming later on a larger scale in the same way. The whole book of Esther serves as a small picture of foreshadowing of what God is doing on a larger scale. The whole book is pointing forward to a greater reality. The reality of the gospel. That's how the whole Old Testament works, Shades. That's how the whole of the Old Testament relates to to us. It points forward to a greater coming reality, the reality of the gospel. There are things from the Old Testament that we're familiar making that connection. We can see how it points forward to the greater coming reality of the gospel. We look at things like the sacrificial system. We're like, okay, I can see how that points forward to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. So we obviously don't make sacrifices anymore. Christ is our sacrifice. We look at the temple and the tabernacle. Okay, I can see how that points forward to Christ. He is God's presence dwelling amongst us. So we go to him. We don't come to a temple or tabernacle for worship. We come to him. We look at the high priest and we say, okay, I can see how Christ is my high priest. He's the one mediator between God and man. I don't need a priest. I'm not your priest, by the way. We don't need a priest. We don't need a go between us and God because Christ and Christ alone fulfills that. And we'll take these little pieces of the Old Testament story and make these connections which are right and good and true, but the reality, Shades, is that the whole of the Old Testament story, Israel's narrative, does the same thing. It points to a larger, greater, grander reality that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The story of a people who were enslaved, rescued out of slavery by the sacrifice of a lamb so that God may lead them through, wandering through a place that's not their own, to bring them to their ultimate home from which he will eradicate all of their enemies and give them rest. That's the story of the gospel. Our God through Jesus Christ, has rescued us from the slavery of sin and death. And we, yes, wander through a world of wilderness right now, but he will bring us home to the promised land, a new heaven, a new earth, from which all of his enemies will be eradicated forever, and we will dwell in wonderful, eternal rest with God. It's the gospel. It's the, it's the larger story that the smaller story points to and Esther is doing the same thing it's pointing to the larger story that God would send a mediator greater than Esther to lay down his life for the salvation of his people in his first coming like Esther's first coming Jesus took the penalty of death upon himself for three days and on the third day he rose to life but just him And just as Esther's personal salvation pictured what was coming from all of God's people, so also Christ's resurrection foreshadows what's in store for all of us when he comes again. In his second coming, we will see true, full, and final reversal of death for all of God's people. 
much like Esther secured in her second coming. I've called this salvation at the end of Esther full and final, but it's really only full and final in this one specific instance. It couldn't truly be full and final. There is only one full and final salvation, one full and final defeat of God's enemies, and we will see it, Shades. It is the ultimate promise of rescue. We will see the full and final defeat of Satan and all of his sons. Don't get me wrong, he's a defeated enemy already who has already been impaled upon his own pride, but a day of judgment is coming for him. A day of judgment which should have been for all of us. A day of judgment in which we are all deserving of death, for we had all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the royal edict of God's word says that the wages of sin is death, but a new edict has been issued from the cross of Christ written in the very blood of Jesus. And the good news of this edict is currently being sent out into all the world, declaring that the coming day of destruction is now a day of salvation for all of those who humbly embrace Christ. Through him, everything has been reversed for you. This is the promise of ultimate rescue. Shades, this is the promise that empowers us now as we live between the first and the second comings of Christ. We are empowered by the promise that ultimate victory is coming. Not immediate victory, but ultimate victory. No matter how much uncertainty we experience amidst our own story, just like Mordecai and Esther experienced uncertainty amidst theirs. No matter how much uncertainty we experience amidst our own story, the ending of our story is certain. It's matter of fact. God wins. That promise is what empowers us to believe that God is present even when it feels like he's absent. That promise is what empowers us to wake up from our lives of compromise and compliance. That promise is what empowers us to deny ourselves, embrace our identity as the people of God. And it, that promise of ultimate rescue, empowers us to take the way of the cross for the glory of God and the sake of the world. This is the entire point of the book of Esther. This is what it holds out to you as true. The ultimate promise of rescue. May that promise wake us up from compromise and compliance. May that promise empower us to embrace our identity as the people of God. Deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Shades, may you, may we be a people empowered until his coming again when our ultimate warrior wages war. We don't wage war right now. We wage war against not flesh and blood but against Satan and his sons. We don't have to swing an actual sword because we have a warrior who's coming. And as we live between his first and second coming, we are empowered to take the way of weakness, the way of the cross, the way of Esther. Because we live empowered by the ultimate promise of rescue. Amen.